0: Well, for the first, uh, like, 1,500 years of the church, pastors sat when they preached. (laughs) I want you to know that that is not why I am sitting. I threw my back out and, uh, yeah, but I am happy to be here. Let uh, Let me pray for us. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. Great are you and greatly to be praised. You are majestic and exalted. And we can only but bow before you. Yet you are the God who comes near, particularly by your word. And so we ask that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you in this act of preaching. And I ask that you would, in your great kindness, manifest your strength even in my weakness These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah had a long and a good reign. He started reigning when he was 16 years old and his reign lasted for 52 years. For 52 years, uh, Israel had known relative prosperity, their borders were secure, and, uh, and the forces, the armies, were strong. As the kings of Israel go, Uzziah was a good one. But of course, um, that's not saying much, if you know anything about the kings of Israel. Nevertheless, Israel felt secure. But that all changed the year King Uzziah died. You see, like many great leaders, pride got the best of him. And Uzziah believed that because he had authority in one area, he had authority in all areas. And so he went into the temple and offered incense on the altar of God, he took on the role of a priest. When he came in and took on the role of a priest, he was doing what many modern Christians do. And that is, he was presuming that because he has authority in one area, he has authority in all areas. He was presuming that because he felt called, he actually was called. But things did not go so well. It was a bad presumption. The temple was cracked. And Uzziah was struck with leprosy, which would kill him. You know, when a nation loses a leader, a nation experiences trauma. When a, peer, a people lose a leader, a people experience trauma, and disillusion. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, stories of pastors or politicians who one gave their life for or followed, uh, when stories come out about their dual lives, or people often leave the faith. This is the situation that Israel's is in. Their world is becoming untethered, unhinged. What do you need... When at the drop of a hat, your world becomes unstable. When twin towers are bombed, stock markets crash, governments shut down, when leaders fail. Many of you in here today, your world is becoming untethered. The anchors that you thought were so secure are dissipating before your eyes. Maybe it's your health that's failing you. Maybe it's your idea of yourself or someone else that's becoming crushed. I never thought that I could do that or they could do that. Maybe it's your financial resources that are becoming untethered. And these things that you thought were so secure, they aren't secure. What do you need in that moment? What you need is what Isaiah got. You need a vision of the Lord. Look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. We're starting a new series today on the book of Isaiah called the one and only true God. And I've got one very simple, very primary goal for this series. And that is, I want to give you a vision of God. I want to give you the vision of God as he really is and as he is revealed in the scriptures and through the book of Isaiah and not the God of our own imaginations and our own making. Because if if we are called to relate to this God, then it must be the God who is and not the God we imagine. And we're starting today with God's holiness. I got an email a couple weeks ago, and uh, as I was reading the email, I kept saying to myself, why is this person yelling at me? The email was written in all caps. You probably have a friend like that. Maybe a mom or a grandmother, and they text in all caps. And you're like, why is it all caps? You know, in our world, we have ways of emphasizing things. We emphasize things with all caps. And some people emphasize the entirety of their emails. Uh, We emphasize things with exclamation points or bold or underlining. We emphasize things in all kinds of ways. Well, the ancient Hebrews would emphasize things as well. And the way that they would emphasize things is by repeating the word twice. So, for instance, when God wants to emphasize the penalty of eating the, uh, the fruit... Of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die in our English translations. Um, But I like the Hebrew better. The day you eat of it, you shall die, die. Dying, you shall be dead. Or when Jesus wants to emphasize what he's saying, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, listen up. You know there's only one thing in the whole of the scriptures that is raised to the third power as it were. And it's right there in this text. It's the song that sang in heaven from eternity. In verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts. The Bible wants to emphasize God's character as holy. The Bible says that God is love, but it doesn't say that God is love, love, love. The Bible says that God is just, but it doesn't say that God is justice, justice, justice. What the Bible says is that God is holy, holy, holy. But what does it mean to be holy? To be holy means to be set apart, to be distinct, utterly distinct. In the Bible, lots of things are made holy, and the way that they're made holy is that they're made holy through relationship with someone or something. So, for instance, the people of Israel are made holy by their relationship with Yahweh, with God. Or um, the children of believers, Paul says, are holy because of their relationship to their parents. Uh, Things could also be set apart for a particular, a distinct use. Priests were set apart for service to the Lord. Uh, Vessels were set apart for service in the temple. These things are considered holy. But all of them, and all of them, they are actually, their holiness is derived from their relationship to someone or something. In other words, there was a time in which they weren't holy, and then they become holy. Holy. Not so God. God's holiness just is. He is eternally holy, holy, holy. It derives from nothing except Himself. That means that God is utterly distinct, that means that God is beyond our understanding. You see, here's the thing about God. All of our talk about God, if God is utterly distinct, is actually by analogy. Did you know that? When we say that God is love, it's like we love. But if his love is utterly distinct, then we're not talking about the same kind of love. It's different not just in quantity, but in quality. When we say that God is just, it's the same thing. When we say that God is a father, it's the same thing. Every way that we talk about God is by analogy, and that means this. That while we can know God truly, we cannot know him fully. And we cannot comprehend him. When we deal with God, we are dealing with that which is utterly beyond us and mysterious. And here's the thing about that. When you deal with that which is utterly beyond you and utterly mysterious, which you can't comprehend. What provokes something in you? There's this guy named Rudolf Otto. I bet you can guess uh, his nationality. He's Chinese. No. Uh, Rudolf Otto was this German guy, and he wrote this important book called The Idea of the Holy. And in it, he says that he deals not with holy things so much as with people's encounters with the holy. And he says when people encounter the holy, uh, this twofold thing, this anomalous, uh, ambiguous, twofold thing reaction, tension comes in them. And that is this. They're simultaneously drawn to that thing and repelled by it. All at the same time. And I bet you felt this. I mean, how many of you have stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon? How many of you have looked into a pit that you couldn't see the bottom of? How many of you have been out in the ocean in the middle of the night And you can't see land anywhere around. Do you know what you feel in that moment? There's one sense where you get kind of spooked, right? There's this kind of dread and fear at something that is bigger that you can't comprehend, that you don't quite understand. And you kind of want to run back into your cabin or run back to your car or run away from it. But at the same time, and we don't admit this to anyone because we feel kind of crazy about it. We also want to just jump in. You know what I'm talking about? That's what Rudolf Otto is saying. When you have encountered the holy, it simultaneously strikes you with this sense of dread and fear and that there's something that is greater than me that I cannot comprehend. And there's this shudder, but there's also something that attracts you to it. When you have encountered the holy, holy, holy God, you will know that you have encountered the holy, holy, holy God when you feel that sense. God is holy, holy, holy. He is utterly distinct. In what way? In every way. But I want to point out three ways, particularly in this passage, that we see him as holy, 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 and utterly distinct. The first way is that God's power, we see, is utterly distinct Isaiah is transported into the temple. And there in the temple, he sees the ceiling opened up. And as he looks up, what he sees is a throne. Now, in the ancient world, the paradigmatic picture of sovereignty and power was a throne. In our world, it's a crown. That's why when we talk about the reign of Queen Elizabeth... We put, uh, the second, we have a show called The Crown. And if this was a modern vision, then we would see this decked out crown. But because it's Isaiah's vision back in his day, he sees this throne high and lifted up. And if you want to know how high, there are angelic beings flying around it. Right, so that's how high it is. This high throne. See, thrones were status symbols. The higher the throne, the greater the power was being claimed. And it's not just with the throne, it's also with the dress. What kings wore said a lot about how important they were. Now, we have a hard time getting our minds around this because this is California, and we wear anything, anywhere. Uh, You know, my first wedding in California, I see Hawaiian shirts, and then realize that that's formal wear here, right? Uh, And... That's not how it works everywhere. So if any of you saw like Prince William's wedding or Harry's wedding, what you'll have noticed is that they changed outfits like three times. And people were decked out. And they saved their best outfit for the ceremony itself because that was the most important thing. And if you saw... um, If you saw Princess... The one that William married. Kate. Kate. (laughs) I'm obviously like follow the royals every move. If you saw Princess Kate, you would see that the train of her gown was like nine feet long. I doubt that you've seen a train of a gown that long. Maybe so. But the train of the robe that hangs off the Lord on high comes down from heaven and layers of it fill the massive temple all around. The claim to sovereignty and power that is being made here is beyond anything that we can imagine. God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, and nothing and no one falls outside of his sovereign dominion. Now, I realize that when I say something like that, it just sounds like theological words. It's hard to get our mind around, and it's like, that sounds like preacher speak, Kyle. Okay, let me break it down for you. In John 1, we learn that in Jesus Christ, the Word of God, all things hold together. Do you know what that means? It means that the one who spoke galaxies into existence by speaking actually holds the molecules together, continually sustains them by the word of his power. And that means this, this movement right here, if God did not continue to speak my hand into existence and this into existence and this into existence and my mind into existence and the neurons into existence, guess what? It would dissipate. It would not exist. This movement right here, that means is ordained by God from before the foundation of the world. You sitting in the chair right now and you holding your pen is ordained by God from before the foundation of the world. Everything and everyone is inside of his sovereign dominion and control. Even evil. Even sin. Because the gunman cannot pull the trigger unless God speaks his finger into existence. And unless God continually sustains the laws of physics, the gun does not go off. And if you don't believe this, traditionally, Christianly, it doesn't mean that you're not reformed. It means that you're a deist. Go read Aquinas. Theologians throughout history have said this about God and made this claim about God. The godness of God who sustains all things, everyone, and everything And that's a God we want. That's a God we want. And that's a God Isaiah needed because when he looked at Israel's throne, and it was probably empty at that point in time, he looked up and he saw a heavenly throne that was filled with the Lord of the universe, the omnipotent one who has all power and authority. And this God, this God does whatever he pleases And that's why it's something that we want, but it's also something that's a bit scary. It attracts us and kind of repels us because this is a God that is not the vision of God we had, which is a cosmic bellhop that does all of our bidding. This is not the giant Santa Claus And this is not the benevolent grandfather that lives on the other coast. This is the holy, holy, holy Lord of the universe. And we get this idea, and often Christianity is mixed with other types of ideas that cause us to think that somehow, some way, we get confused and we think that God exists for our happiness. Ephesians 1:11 says that God works out all things according to the counsel of his will and do you know why to the praise of his glorious grace God does all things for his happiness Now I want to be clear you were made to worship God, and you were made to live in a relationship with God, and you find your happiness in that relationship, but God does not exist for your happiness. God exists for God, and God created you for God. See, this is, this is one whose power is beyond us. But it's not just that God's power is utterly distinct and he is holy, holy, holy in relationship to his power. He is also holy, holy, holy in relationship to his moral purity. God's moral purity is utterly distinct. And that's the second thing that we see in this text. You know, there are these angelic beings and they are flying around the throne of God. And... They live continually, verse 2 says, in his presence. And Isaiah goes kind of out of his way to describe the anatomy of these creatures. It's kind of interesting. You know that most things in God's created order, uh, their anatomy fits with the environment in which they live. Think about the great musk ox. I know a lot of you were thinking about the musk ox this morning like I was. And these creatures live in the frozen tundra, the coldest parts of the world. Do you know how they do it? They've got this hair that's really long and hollow. And their really long, thick, hollow hair actually works as a down jacket. It catches the air and then their body temperature warms it up and insulates them. That things are made for their environment. We find that the seraphim who were created to live in God's immediate presence have six wings. But with only two did their seraphim fly. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, verse 2. With two, with two he flies. With the rest, he covers himself. Why? Well, I think we get a hint of it when we look at, for instance, the the story of Moses going up uh, at the Exodus, Moses has seen God do all these amazing things and he wants more. And God calls him after the Exodus and they reach Mount Sinai up to meet with him. And there Moses meets with him and he says, God, show me your glory. I want to see your unadulterated glory. And God looks at Moses and he says, look, Moses, they start to negotiate. He says, I'll make a deal with you. I'll let you, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock. I'll let my goodness pass before you. And I'll show you my back parts. I don't know. I'll show you my back parts. He says, but you cannot see my face, Moses. You cannot see my face. Now, why does God say you cannot see my face? Is it because God is being private? Is it because God is stingy? Is it because God does not want humanity to see his face ultimately? No. He says, no man can see my face and live. He's protecting Moses. Why? Remember the Beatitudes where Jesus gives all those blessings? Remember that blessing, blessed are the pure in heart? What happens to the pure in heart? They will see God. God. See, the only way that you can see God's face and live is if you are pure in heart. And Moses is not pure in heart, and neither are you, and neither am I. And it's only the pure in heart who see God. Well, wait a second. We're not talking about sinful human beings, we're talking about sinless celestial beings. Exactly. Seraphim means burning one, literally. Listen to me. If the burning ones must cover themselves in the presence of the God who is cleansing fire, then how much more you and I who are flesh and blood If sinless angelic beings must cover themselves in the presence of a holy God, then what about sinful humanity? What about you and me? See, do you have any idea what God we are approaching when we come to worship Him? Do you have any idea? I love how Annie Dillard puts it in her book, If Stones Could Talk. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense or the waking God may draw us out Where we can never return. Do you have any idea what we are doing when we come and we say, Lord, come be with us? Do you know what we're asking? You know, I mentioned earlier our culture here in California. And I want to be honest. I've been here for nine years. And I love it. It it actually... um, would be very difficult for me to leave. I would not want to leave California uh, in any way. And one of the things that I love about California is that there's this kind of light, airy casualness to folks. I mean, yes, my suit collection has gone down from like six to one, and my ties from countless to like three, and I still have too many, right? Uh, We are a casual culture. And we are a breezy culture. And there's something that is light and airy about that. And there's something that's actually quite nice about that. But we need to be careful. Because we cannot be breezy in our approach to God. And I wonder if we've forgotten that. And I'm not talking about dress code. I don't think that has anything to do with it. In the, in the ancient world, people had two tunics if they were rich. I'm not talking about dress code and I'm not talking about guitars. I don't think musical instruments are more holy or less, more reverent or less. But there is an approach to God that I think is fitting because there is this reverent sense of awe. And Habakkuk chapter two says, the Lord is in his temple. Let the earth keep silent. And do we sense that or feel that anymore? I do think that we do sense it in a way. And I think that people sense it when they come into our church and they're kind of struck by it. One time I had someone tell me, uh, people are really stiff, and I'm not sure that they understand grace, but you talk about grace all the time. And I reflected on that more, and okay, maybe like there's some socialness where we're a little awkward and stiff, okay. But I think actually one of the things that they were really sensing was that there is this reverential awe because we understand that we come before the holy, holy, holy God. And that, causes us to bow in awe and majesty now I'm going to say something that is maybe a bit challenging but I think it needs to be said and I'm saying it because I love you and I want to help you and I'm saying it for me as well we're a full house and I'm so thankful for that and because we're a full house, many of you maybe have started to realize that you need to come early. And that's good. And listen, there are some people here and some of you that you come late. And I want to be really clear. I am thankful that you are here at all. But I also want to make sure that I say are you actually prepared and do you understand what you're doing when you come to worship? And have you prepared yourself? Or do you roll out of bed and breezily come in whenever your body clock takes you in here? Because here's the thing about our service. I want you to understand this. We are coming face to face with the Holy God And communing with him at his table. And this entire service is prepared to get you ready for that. And so if you don't hear him call you to worship. And you don't sing about his greatness and goodness. And his attributes that are placarded before you in the early songs and you don't hear his character from the scriptures, and then you're not going to be able or ready to confess your sin truly or rightly. And if you don't confess your sin truly or rightly, then you're not going to be able to hear his assurance of pardon. And if you don't hear his assurance of pardon, then how can you know that you're okay when you come to this table? This whole service is preparing you for that act. And so that at this act you don't have doubts or questions, but you rejoice and feast before the lord your god but in order to be ready you got to get yourself ready and we're trying to help you with our service so so prepare set your clock early and come to worship the living god who is holy 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 let us the author of Hebrews says worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Is your God a consuming fire? Is your picture of God a consuming fire? Notice that in this holy place verse 4 says that at the sound of their voices the doorpost and the thresholds shook and the temple filled with smoke why because god's holiness implies his entire freedom from moral evil and his absolute moral perfection habakkuk 1:13 says your eyes god are too pure to look on evil God can't look on evil not because it's going to hurt God, but because it's going to destroy that which is evil. I'm not a physicist, but physicists tell me that when matter and antimatter meet, there's a disintegration that happens. When the holy God comes before sin, there's a disintegration that happens. It is matter and And antimatter. And even the host of heaven wilt before the holiness of God. So you cannot come before the holiness of God and not be shaken. As the host of heaven are, and as Isaiah is, look at verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. Now, that's a weak translation. And it may be hard for us to get our minds around or to have a translation that's fitting. But the old translations say ruin, some say undone. But the idea is, woe is me, for I am cut off. I cease. I cut off from God and therefore I cease to exist. I am undone like disintegrated. And the prophet pronounces a curse on himself. Woe is me. Why? Verse 5. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, I wonder if Isaiah's contemporaries thought that he had unclean lips. I seriously doubt it. We don't know this, but I would guess that they would think that he was a pretty righteous dude. That's probably the language that they would use. And, and I bet Isaiah thought that his lips were pretty holy as well. But all those illusions were shattered that day. You know, there's a big game today. Some of you know this. Football game. Did you know that actually back in the day, I know you know this because I repeat it a lot. I used to play football. I know it's so amazing. So that's why I have to keep telling you. And and I actually, uh, I thought I was pretty good. I'm not going to lie. I thought I was pretty good in high school. Other people thought I was pretty good too. They said I should go play college. And and that all changed the day that I lined up uh, against actually Scott Wells. Scott Wells, who um, we share a lot in common. So me and Scott Wells, here's some things we share in common. Last name, (laughs) color of hair, we have the same 40 time. We both run it in under five flat. Um, We have some things that aren't in common either. Uh, Like, he weighs 150 pounds more than me. That means he's twice my size, like literally twice my size, and he also is six inches taller than me. And one day when I was in high school, we played Brentwood Academy, and I lined up across from Scott Wells, who would go on to win Super Bowl forty-five for the Green Bay Packers. And Scott Wells blocked a punt that day, and the way that he blocked a punt, he blocked a punt without ever touching the ball. So, how do you block a punt without ever touching the ball? You throw me into the punter. (laughs) That's what he did. And you better believe that. So, I got a punt block. (laughs) That day, I got a stat for a punt block. It was awesome. Just the wrong team. Listen, all my illusions that I was some stellar athlete and my athletic prowess were shattered the day I stood face to face before Scott Wells. Every illusion that Isaiah has, that he is holy, that he is righteous, are shattered when he stands face to face before the holy God. You see, the other players at my small private Christian high school were not the comparison. And I'm not the comparison and you're not the comparison and your fellow humans are not the comparison. The standard is God. And before that standard, we, our understandings, our self-understandings of ourselves, are shattered. Look what does it to him. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Have your eyes seen the King, the Lord of hosts? Has your self-understanding of your righteousness and your goodness been shattered? And do you understand how much you need covering? Which leads us to the last way in which God's grace is Utter, or in which God is utterly distinct, holy, and that is His grace. God's grace is utterly distinct. How do we expect God to respond to Isaiah? Well, if He was a modern person, I think that we would say, Isaiah, <laughs> come on, dude, don't be so hard on yourself. I mean, come on, look, you're a pretty good guy, and besides, I mean, you're better than most people, and you're worthy. You just got to believe that you're worthy. Uh, And if you don't believe that, you're going to have a really bad self-image and that's going to have lots of bad ramifications. And so Isaiah, what you need to hear is that you are fine just the way you are. And that's what we call grace. That's not how God responds to Isaiah. Look at verses six and seven. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me And having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now what on earth is going on here? This is the strangest thing. Why the coals from the altar? Why the touching the mouth? And the answer is at the end of verse 7. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's this idea of atonement or covering, to have sin taken away and to be shielded and covered. You see, the coals come from the altar, and the altar is the place of sacrifice. When an Israelite would come to worship God, they would sacrifice lots of bulls and goats and blood would run. And the idea was this, if you are going to become, uh, come before a holy God, it's going to cost. There's going to have to be payment. There is penalty. Things aren't right. Your sin means that you are not okay just the way you are. But here in this text, we don't see anything about bulls and goats, so what sacrifice is it that takes away Isaiah's sin? You know the author of Hebrews in chapter ten says that the bull, the blood of bulls and goats, could never take away sin. It is impossible, the author says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But in chapter nine earlier, it says that those, blo- those bulls and goats were pointing to a greater sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have to come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He has appeared once for all time, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. How was Isaiah able to have his sin atoned for? It was nothing less than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on his behalf. And that sacrifice is a sacrifice that God provided. And it's God's self-sacrifice because here's what Christians believe. Christians believe that Jesus is the man that God became when God decided to become a man. And that means that this is God's own provision see, grace cost you nothing, but it cost him everything. He sacrificed himself for you. And so the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that you are all right and God accepts you just the way you are. The good news is that you and I are not all right, but because he loves us, yes, because he loves us, The holy God has himself made a way for us to be acceptable in his sight. And it costs nothing less than the precious blood of his son. And that is grace. That is his gift. And it both attracts us and repels us. It both attracts us and causes a fear. It attracts us because... Because we want and we were made to stand before this holy God and we want to be clean. We desire so bad to be clean. But it also strikes fear in us because when this grace is applied, it kind of hurts. Did you notice that in verse 7 that the seraphim takes this coal and it touches him with the mouth? Now, why the mouth? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. See, God applied the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to Isaiah where he felt his sin the greatest. Where do you feel your sin the greatest this morning? Is it your mouth? Is it your hands? Is it your sexual organs? What is it? The grace of Jesus Christ applies there. And God wants you to know it. Imagine this scene with me though. This burning one takes a hot burning coal from the altar and he has to use tongs to pick it up. The burning one, the fiery one has to use tongs to pick it up. And he takes it to Isaiah and then he presses it against his lips. Now, what if he were to do that to you, how do you think you would react? I'm guessing that you would maybe flinch just a little. And how do you think that it felt when these burning coals touched the lips of Isaiah and cauterized his lips? I bet it was excruciating. Grace is excruciating. because when God brings his grace into our lives he has to kill in order to make alive he has to wound in order to heal he has to break down in order to build up and a lot of people talk about grace and think of grace like it's some kind of ride at Disneyland not Space Mountain or the, or the, or the, um, the haunted house I cry at those but some of the teacups but listen grace is not like that You have to be crucified with Christ. You have to die and rise again because what you need and what I need is not reformation but transformation. The sin is so insidious, we have to have the radiation. The chemo has to get everywhere. And it hurts, but it heals. Grace changes you. And it also allows you to serve him. Look at verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And what was Isaiah to do? But to speak. To use those filthy lips that have now been cleansed in God's service. And that's how it often is with God. The very place where he wounds us, he uses us. Where does it hurt this morning? That could be where God's grace is dealing with you. And that could be where God wants to use you in his service for others. Some of you wrestled with addiction and wrestle with addiction. Some of you, it's in your family. Some of you, it's in your parenting. Some of you, it's with your your parents. Some of you, it's work. Listen, God wants to bring his grace into those areas of your life, and it hurts. But he also wants to bring his grace into those areas of your life so that he can heal you and use you to proclaim his saving grace to others. And you want it. You want it. So come to him. We're going to close now with a time of silence. And to ask the Lord to show us where he wants to bring his grace into our lives. And to use us. Let me open our time with prayer. And God, I ask that you would give us a vision of yourself, the holy, holy, holy God. And that you, in your holy otherness, would come and give us what we need most your awesome, saving presence.